As we come to the scripture, let me ask you please to, uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, uh, we now come to your word and I pray that you would help us, that you would give us uh, keen minds, but more than that, Father, you would give us hearts that desire to embrace that which is here, that which is true, and you would help us to believe and so that we can walk in such a way, live in such a way that would bring glory to you. Help us, God, we're needy, need your strength. We need your wisdom. We need your mercy and grace. Please provide. And God, we thank you for this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to 1 Timothy in chapter 1. 1 Timothy in chapter 1, please. Uh, I want to read, uh, beginning with verse 18. Just read verses 18 through 20. 1 Timothy chapter 1, please. Hear the word of God. Uh, this charge... I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, let me paraphrase this for you. Paul writes to his son in the faith, Timothy, and he says to Timothy, you have a battle on your hands. I want you to fight this good fight. It's a good fight, meaning that it's valuable, meaning that it, it, it's something worth fighting. In fact, so worth fighting, it has eternal value. And he says, Timothy, you know about this fight because when you were ordained, prophecies were made concerning you and concerning this Fight, so you know about this fight. But, 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 Timothy, you need to reflect back on those prophecies so that you'll be enabled to hold faith, keep faith, and a good conscience. Because, you see, if you reject a good conscience, your faith will be shipwrecked. Just as it was with these two, Hymenaeus and Alexander, and they've been given over to Satan to teach them not to blaspheme. Not a warm, fuzzy. But a very serious call to this young pastor, Timothy. You see, in the church, this charge for Timothy was to uphold the gospel, really. You remember that in chapter 3, Paul laid out, we talked about this a month or so ago, Paul laid out the purpose for which he was writing. He was writing to them so that they would know Timothy's church, he's the pastor of this church in Ephesus, that that church would know how they're to conduct themselves in the household of God, that is the very dwelling place of God, the place where God dwells and he is the father and we belong to him as his children and, and follow him and obey him and he provides for us and all of that. As the household of God, the church of the living God, called out by God to be his church of the living God, he said, and here's your calling to be a pillar and support of the truth. And so Timothy realizes that, the church realizes that, that what they're to be about here is to maintain, to guard, to preserve, to proclaim the gospel, the true gospel, the gospel that was handed down by the apostles, the gospels that was consistent with what Christ had done, the gospels that are consistent with Christ, what Christ taught, the gospels that are consistent with everything that was told about the Christ who was to come. That gospel, Paul says, that you're to maintain, you're to, to protect, to proclaim. And so you're to be a pillar and a support of that truth. 
And so as, as Timothy comes, he realizes that his charge is to do just that. And so Paul lays out from the very get-go, from the very start, that you are to go to those who are teaching in the church, that you're they're teaching in the church that which is false. Now, it's always surprising to us, at least to me, in one sense, that we're teaching that which is false inside the church. You expect it outside the church. In fact, Paul lived in Ephesus, and, and there he was, as we've mentioned, in the shadow of this huge temple, one of the ancient seven wonders of the world, this huge temple, this temple to the goddess Diana, this temple that supplied not only great religious fervor in Ephesus, but also great income because of the tourist industry, the pilgrims that would come to go to this temple and all that they would buy concerning the goddess Diana and all of that. And, and so it really fueled the whole place. So Paul was there in the shadow of this great temple. And, and, and so we would expect false teaching from outside the church. But, but Paul said, no, 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 no. It's also on the inside as well. You might remember we've mentioned this in Acts chapter 20. In one of Paul's travels, he was in a place, city called Miletus, and he called for the elders of Ephesus, this very place where Timothy was pastoring, called for the elders of Ephesus to meet him in Miletus because Again, he was afraid he wasn't going to make it to Ephesus and he wanted one more word with them concerning the situation was there. Whether he was trying to help Timothy in the midst of this, I don't know exactly when that took place vis-a-vis -vis this letter. But, 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 but Paul meets with these elders in Ephesus and he tells them to guard their lives and to, to guard the church because they're shepherds of the flock of God, these very ones for whom Christ has died. And he says, because savage wolves will come and that whole expression, savage, was going to come from among you, uh, harkens back to this, this expression of Jesus, that false prophets are wolves in sheep's clothing, which makes them very dangerous because they, they, they look like you, they, they sound like you, they look like us, they sound like us, but, but they're not. And deep inside, there's something wrong, and the teaching that comes out is false, and it leads astray, and in fact, it's a wolf who's come in to eat the sheep, and so... He says this is a very dangerous, very dangerous situation. So Timothy, Timothy knows uh, all of uh, Timothy knows all of that, and and so now Paul comes to him and says, "I want you to to guard yourself. I want you to be able to survive. I don't you want, I want you to end up like Hymenaeus and Alexander. I don't want your ship, your faith to be shipwrecked. So I want to lay this out for you because you see this this spiritual battle." all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We, we know that. Uh, we know that false teaching began at the very get-go. We know that this one who is known as Satan, the devil, the adversary, the father of lies, he's the one who is behind all of this, if you will. And even in the Garden of Eden, uh, uh, attacked the very word of God, it attacked that which was true. You remember what he said to Eve? Did God really say? Just that. Did God really say that? In other words, I, I know you're holding on to this thing that you call truth that you really think God said, but, but, but did he really say that? And, and doubt begins to come in and, and all of a sudden she, uh, in that moment in time, doubts the word of God, disobeys, and, and you know what happens after that. But, but always this evil one, this father of lies, the adversary, is the one behind this battle, this battle concerning truth. Did God really say, is what God said really true? And you see here, 
Timothy is called as the pastor of this church, and this church is called with him to be a pillar in support of the truth, to maintain it, to guard it, to preserve it, to proclaim it, that which is true. Don't ever let anything come in and destroy that, because if you do, then you've lost everything, you see. So he says there's a fight. There's a fight not only outside, there's also this fight on the inside. You need to wage this good warfare, this good fight, this fight to maintain that which is really true. See, this evil one always trying to destroy the truth. You see it in the bloodbath that took place right after the birth of Jesus. To destroy this very one who was the truth to come. He knew that he couldn't or wasn't able to get right at him. So working through Herod, Herod said, well, then we'll have all the little boys around here killed so that, if, so that we're sure to get this one who was, who was born. And, of course, it failed. We, we see this very evil one coming uh, to tempt Jesus, to turn him away from that which his father had called him to, the mission to glorify his father by saving his people from their sins. And, 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 he, and he tried to get Jesus to reject the truth. But you remember Jesus continued to quote the scripture, quote the truth and says, no, what you're saying is false. This is what is really true. So we see this evil one trying to destroy the very truth of God as uh, through the arrogance, if you will, of the religious leaders of Jesus' day who were teaching that which was false. But yet, the people had an inkling to follow them because they were the ones, as the scripture says, who sat in Moses' seat. They were the rulers. We saw it as the evil one comes and tries to lure even Peter away. You remember on the occasion that Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And, and Peter, by the Holy Spirit, said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus said, yes, I am. And here's what's going to happen to the Christ. The Christ, you, I, Jesus, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be, be, to, to, to be killed. And by the chief priests and scribes, and, and, and Peter said, oh, no, you're not. Jesus said, this is true. And Peter said, no, it isn't. Jesus saw through all of that. And what did he see? We know what he saw by what he said. He looked at Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. He said, I, I, I know that voice. That's the one, the liar, the evil one, the adversary, the one who's always been against that which is true. I know where you got that, Peter. Amazingly, just moments ago, you were speaking from the Holy Spirit. And now you're speaking from Satan himself. But he says, get behind me. You see it in the ones who were possessed by demons and they would confront Jesus and, and, and confront the truth and Jesus would cast them out. We, we see it even as the evil one comes into Judas to try to destroy this one who is the Christ. And we see it at the, at, at the trial and we see it at the crucifixion and all of that. Uh, and Jesus triumphs over this evil one by way of continually proclaiming and living out that which is true. He is the truth. And so we see the evil one continually coming against Jesus. When John, the apostle, was in glory seeing this, this great vision, uh, numbers of visions really, uh, we call it the revelation of Jesus Christ to the apostle John. Uh, he made note of the fact that this evil one, Revelation chapter 12, is filled with fury 
Now that Christ has come, he's filled with fury because he realizes that his time is short. He realizes he hasn't much time. He realizes that he's doomed and and all of that because of the work of Christ. And so uh, John sees this and reports to us that he's filled with fury. And he's coming after, he says later on in chapter 12 of Revelation, those who obey the commandments and who follow the Lord Jesus. So, so the battle's still there. Uh, now, now, we know about this battle. We know that he's been defeated. We know that in Christ we're safe and secure and all of that. But still, the Lord allows this evil one to exist and to come against the world and even against us. And the design of God is that it strengthens us. The design of the evil one is that he tears us away, you see. Paul knows that, and he knows the place where Timothy is, and he knows not only is it in Ephesus, and this, this place where this big temple exists, and all of that, and the false teaching, but, but he knows he's in the church, and he knows the place that Timothy has as the pastor of this church, and he, he knows the place that the elders of Ephesus have as elders in this church, and he knows the, the church itself, and he, so he's telling Timothy, hold faith and a good conscience. Lest your faith be shipwrecked. Even ones there, Paul the Apostle, of course, lays out for us much of this spiritual battle. Um, ironically, I suppose we could say, in this letter to the church at Ephesus. He, he writes to Timothy, but he also writes to the church at Ephesus. In Ephesians in, in chapter 6, he, he speaks of this battle. He writes, verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up uh, the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Paul's being very honest with the church, being very honest with this young pastor, he's being very honest with us saying, in the midst of all of this, remember that there's something you cannot see that's behind all of this evil. And so, keep your eye on that. Now, there's a way. You see, there's a means by which you can remain safe, but, but you need to take up that means. That's what faith is all about. Also, Peter speaks bluntly as well in First Peter in chapter 5. He says, be sober-minded, that is, that is, that don't be, don't be flippant. Don't trifle with these spiritual things. Be serious about this. Understand really what's at stake. Be sober-minded, he says. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And and after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. I mean, Peter's not just leaving the church out to to dry there. He says, no, remember, remember, it's God who's called you, and, and he's the one who has dominion forever and ever. And realize, too, that this is just the experience of Christians, the evil one having certain sway with him uh, and, 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 and causing difficulty in life. So, so don't think your situation is unique, but still get it. Still understand what's behind all of this. And don't give in 
Continue to trust. You'll see it. You'll see the, the, the ultimate vindication. You'll see the fruit of your faith one day at this restoration. Hang on. Don't be suckered in. Don't get confused by any of this by any of this really. So, so Timothy was engaged in this battle and the, and the apostle was, was, was telling him about it. And, and you see, the church has been engaged in this battle from the very beginning. You read through the New Testament, you find this battle concerning truth. You read through the history of the church and you find counsel after counsel after counsel being called by authorities in the church to say, let's deal with this. Let's deal with the canon of Scripture. Let's deal with the authority of Scripture. What really is Scripture? How, how, how do we understand it? Who is Christ? Really? What has He done? And you realize that these same fights are happening today, not outside the church, but inside the church. I'm not going to take you through all the things that have been happening even in the last decade or so, but all kinds of movements concerning the atoning work of Christ and its centrality or not. What does it really mean that Christ died? These questions are arising from within inside what we call the evangelical church. What about the authority of scripture? Is, is it just culturally based? Is it just, just for one time and not another? What's really normative for human beings? It's coming from the inside, you see. And so we're having to deal with it. Who is God really? Does he really not only know the future, but is he sovereign over the future? I mean, who is this God really? Is he changing along with us? These are, these are questions that are arising out from within the evangelical church. And so all the time we need to be on our guard. All the time we need to be watching and, and, and looking at all of this. And so Paul says to Timothy as this pastor, you're charged in a very special way as the pastor. And we'll read about elders later. They're charged in a very special way. It doesn't take the responsibility away from the church, church people if you will. But pastors, elders, particular responsibility. So I'm writing this so you'll know how to behave in the church. And, and this is how God has established the church, pastors, elders, and all of that. Charge you with this special charge to deal with this. But you need to be on your toes. You need to be on your guard. And you need to go to those, if ever, those teaching false uh, doctrine in the context of the church. You, Timothy, as pastor, elders, later, you go to them and deal with it. Because it's that important. He says, this is a good fight. This is a good fight. I'm gonna, I don't know how many fights you're in. <laughs> we get in fights all the time. I mean, we don't punch people, I hope. But, but when we get into arguments with these things, we defend certain things, you know. The cable guy comes and does a bad job. We get all upset about that. Uh, you know, um, something happens at the schools and we fight that. It's a good fight, you see. Various things happen in the course of our life. Paul says to Timothy, this is a good fight. If this is won, everything's won. If this is lost, everything's lost. This is a good fight. Remember a number of years ago, I can tell this story now because this person is no longer in our church. A long time ago. Although some of you may, uh, may should I? Yeah, I use this. this is all right. You don't know this person. I was preaching and I made a flippant comment as I want to do. Can't tell you how many Sunday afternoons I sit there and go, Bill, you've been doing this for a long time. I can't believe you said that. <laughs> Although I take some comfort, Charles Spurgeon, great preacher in the 19th century in England, was once confronted by a woman after he had said something flippant in a sermon, and she said, Dr. Spurgeon, that was a flippant comment. You shouldn't have said that. You need more self-control. And he said, ma'am, if you knew what went through my head while I was preaching, 
you would know I exercise a great deal of self-control. <laughs> but not enough, generally. Anyway, I made a flipping comment. It was about, ironically, it was about an NPR broadcast that I listen to all the time, and I, when I can. I really like the show, but I don't always agree with them. But I like it. It's, it's well done, and, and I like it. But I, I made a flippant comment about it, and this person took offense and wrote me a long letter, single-spaced, three pages, in defense of that NPR broadcast. And I read it, and I agreed with him. And I wrote him back quickly and sincerely, and they said, you're right. I shouldn't have said that. It was unnecessary. It was confusing. At best. Please forgive me. But I must say, perhaps in my sin, I couldn't help but wonder if this person would defend the gospel like that. And then I couldn't help but wonder if I would defend the gospel like that. And just what is this is a small, well, at least to me, was a small comment concerning something. And, and flip into that, you shouldn't even have taken it seriously. But, but, but a small thing was so passionately defended by one who so clearly understood and loved that show, loved that program. And I, I thought about him first and then me second because of my sin. And I thought about me and I wondered, am I that careful to defend the gospel? Am I that passionate to defend the gospel? Even amidst flippant throwaway comments about the gospel, let alone substantial comments, thoughts about the gospel. And this passage, I remember even then, rung in my head. Fight! That fight always be on be on guard, you see. So, there we are. And of course, we don't, we don't fight angrily. We don't, we don't fight in, in, in ways that are physical, obviously. That's not his point. But when you fight in such a way that, that shows the truth of the gospel, and so the way that we fight is very important. We'll come to this later a bit in First Timothy. But, but even as, as Paul writes to Timothy, in Second Timothy, he lays it out like this on how Timothy is to pursue these, these, these battles, and, and we see it's so counterintuitive. In 2 Timothy in chapter 2, verse 23, Paul says, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. So first of all, he's saying to Timothy, you've got to be really discerning. Don't get involved in stuff you shouldn't get involved in. It's just going to just breed more quarrels. There's some things you have to be smart enough, discerning about to say, All right, that isn't important. That's, that's just, no, I'm not going to go there. And then verse 24, he says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, that is, looking for battles, but kind to everyone, able to teach, that is, when difficulties come, you, you need to take a deep breath, you need to talk it through, you need to teach it through, you need to explain what is true here, patiently enduring evil. That means when people criticize you and that when people come back at you and say you're crazy for what you believe and how you're explaining this, you don't take offense, but you patiently endure it, correcting your opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and that they and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will in other words it's simply what's what's at risk here is not your reputation what's at risk here is not your ego what's at risk here is is not your your your, your stomach difficulties that, that, your, your tension and all of that that's not the point the point is their souls the point is 
thinking in such a way, acting in such a way, teaching in such a way, being patient in such a way, instructing in such a way, correcting in such a way, that they may yet come to repentance. So that's how he's to fight. That's what it means to take up this, this battle. Now notice, Paul says to him, he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. Isn't that a curious statement? The prophecies previously, I'm kind of echoing, I don't know if you guys, do you want to use this one? We could switch if we need to. Uh, the prophecies previously uh, made about you. Interesting statement. Because we don't know exactly what those prophecies were. We, we, we anticipate that what Paul is talking about is this, what we would call the ordination of Timothy to be pastor of the church. We use that language to ordain. It means to declare, to invest someone with this office as, as pastor. And so we suspect that's what Paul is talking about. In fact, in 1 Timothy in chapter 4, Paul makes mention of such a, such a time. Verse 14, he says, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So we know there was a moment in time when something happened to Timothy, that the elders of the church took Timothy aside laid their hands upon him, which means they set him apart, which means they recognized that God was calling him to this office. They set their hands upon him as, as the approval of the church and as the approval of God upon him to be pastor, this sense of ordination. So Paul said there was something that was conferred to you, a gift, if you will, during that point in time. In fact, in Second Timothy in chapter 1, Paul lays it out like this, verse 6. He says, For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So, so obviously, Timothy had had this experience this time of being set apart from the church. So Paul said, during that time, prophecies that is words from God concerning what you are about to do as a pastor at Ephesus and concerning your life, perhaps were made about you at that time. Now, what I want you to do, Timothy, is to remember that moment. Because there will be times when you'll think that you're about to be consumed by this work. There will be times when you'll be so discouraged that you'll think that you've never been called to this, to this office, to this place of being a pastor. So, but I want you to remember back on that day. That's why, for instance, wedding ceremonies are important for husbands and wives. It's good to be able to go back and to think, oh, I remember there was a day that she said she loved me. <laughs> oh, yeah, there was a day... When I said I loved her. And there was a day when she said she'd love me till she died. And there was a day when I said I would do that too. It's important to have those moments. And so Paul says to Timothy, I want you to remember that moment. What was said about you by elders of the church, even by Paul himself. The apostle, I want you to remember that moment that will give you courage. That will give you strength. 
Because this is an overwhelming task. I've been a participant in and present in the ordinations of many, many young men over the years in ministry. And never an ordination goes by that I don't at some point weep. Especially the older I get. Because I know what's going to happen in their lives. And I I know what's at stake. And I know if they're conscientious at all the burdens that they will have and feel. Old dead Scotsman, and I I often lay this on these young men, uh, just because that's the kind of guy I am, uh, at their ordinations. uh, Robert Murray McShane, um, Scotsman, died a century or two ago, was preaching the ordination of a young man, and he said this. He says, the want of ministerial success is a tremendous circumstance never to be contemplated without horror. Now let me explain that. The want of ministerial success, by that he meant is the lack of success in the calling to which you've been called. And by success he doesn't mean the kind of worldly success and all of that. He means success in being able to proclaim accurately the gospel and to see people come to faith in Christ and to enable them as a pastor to help them to persevere to the end. He says, that lack of success, thinking about not being able to proclaim the gospel well, not seeing people come to faith, not seeing people persevere in their faith as their pastor, you can only think of that with cold chills, with fear, because you know it's a stake, because you know that if the gospel isn't proclaimed rightly, people don't come to faith. And you know if people don't come to faith, and people don't persevere in their faith, you know what happens. Remember, as a young pastor, I was... Uh, talking to an older pastor at that time. He was probably younger than I am now, but he was old. And formulating all my ideas and all that sort of thing about the life that was ahead of me, I said to him, what's your goal as a pastor? I had had a bunch of them. I mean, I I had list after list after list, you know, and ways to get there. And he said to me, after some reflection, as if he hadn't really thought about that. He said, when I get to heaven, I want to see all my people there. I said, rats, I was going to write a book. (laughs) That's really it, you see. And for Timothy... And really for any of us, in the context of the life of the church, to contemplate anything less than that. To bring fear to us. Dread to us. Oh no. What could be worse than not having one of us in glory? You see. So Paul says, this this is really what's at stake, Timothy. I'm, I'm laying this out for you. I don't want you to miss that. So what I want you to do is go back and think about what was said at your ordination. That all prepared you for this. Paul says to him, 
He says, this charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. He says, everything that you're going through was prophesied. Everything that you're going through, all this difficulty, everything that you're going through, uh, was in accordance with what was said at your ordination. Because that's what we do with those kinds of things. And the same way at a wedding. You see, we lay out what's to come in some sense. I always talk about forgiveness at a wedding. (laughs) Because I know what's to come. Always talking about being compassionate and merciful and being kind and all of that at a wedding. Always talk about the fact that, that our marriage reflects the relationship between Christ and the church. Why? Because I know it's to come and I know we'll forget all of that in the heat of the battle and the, the difficulties of life and the discouragements of life and all of that. I, I know it's to come in marriage. So, so you've got to keep that in your mind. So there have to be times when you're able to reflect back either at that moment or something you've read in Scripture and said, oh yes, I get it. And even as believers in Christ, you see, when difficulties come, we shouldn't be surprised. We are often because we sort of think that God owes us or that God's promised that this world is just going to be a delight all the time. And it just simply isn't. We know that. And so when difficulties come, whether it's illness, whether it's unemployment, whether it's discouragement in relationships, whether it's getting older, whether it's pains, whether it's fears, whether it's discouragement, whatever it is, he's prepared us for that. And so we go back to the scriptures and we read what God has said. Even the battle that we're in, we go back to the words of Jesus when he says, listen, the world hated me, they're going to hate you. So you find yourself being hated because of Christ, not because you're obnoxious or because you're a difficult person, but you find yourself being hated because of Christ. I told you about that. Why are you surprised about that? I told you it would be different. I told you to count the cost in following me. I told you that if you're going to follow me, you must take up your cross that is put to death yourself, if you will, and follow me. I told you all of that. So why are you surprised? I told you this isn't glory. I told you there's a new heavens and a new earth to come. Why do you expect this to be that? So don't be surprised. Don't allow that to steal your faith. Don't allow that to take your joy. Don't allow that to to cause you to stumble. And so in a very similar way, he's saying this to Timothy. Let me read to you. This is is an old book. Actually, it's a new book, but it's old. hundred years old, written. But it's a, the book, it's called, what's it called? The Book of Common Worship. It's an old one because the newer ones... Uh, have failed. But this is an old one from the Presbyterian Church, and it's a charge given to a pastor. A charge given to a minister. And again, there is a unique calling to a minister, but there's also this same sort of illustrative calling to us all. So let me just read you this. This is after a minister has been ordained. The pastor says, My brother... You've now been ordained to the office of the Holy Ministry, and by the authority of the Presbytery, you've been commissioned to preach the word, to administer the sacraments, and to perform those other duties appointed by the church. I now charge you, in the name of the Lord Jesus, the great head of the church, to be faithful to this your high calling. I exhort you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you may have in remembrance into how high a dignity and to how weighty an office You've been set apart, that is to say, to be a messenger, watchman, and steward of the Lord, to teach and to admonish, to feed and provide for the Lord's flock, to seek for Christ's sheep that are dispersed abroad, and for his children who are in the midst of this evil world, that they may be saved through Christ forever. When you hear that, and you sit under the weight of that, 
You know, the seriousness of the charge, not just to the pastor, but to us all. As the church of Jesus Christ, to that to which we've been called, you see. And we realize that really the souls of human beings, in some sense, we know the sovereignty of God. We know the working of the Holy Spirit. All of that predates all that we do. But yet still, we know the responsibility to which we're called as the church of Jesus Christ. We know that the souls of human beings rest in some sense on our faithfulness. And we mustn't miss that. Charles does not have always, therefore, in remembrance, that is, keep remembering these things, how great a treasure is committed to your charge. For they are the sheep of Christ which he bought with his death and for whom he shed his blood, the church and congregation with which you serve is his body. And if it shall happen that the same church or any member thereof do take any hurt or hindrance by reason of your negligence, know the greatness of this fault. That is, if you're negligent in your duty and there's a, one for whom Christ has died, who takes offense by that, he means this doesn't get mad at you, means hurts their faith. He says, realize the greatness of that, fa- their, that fault. Wherefore, consider with yourself the end of the ministry toward the children of God, toward the church, the body of Christ, and never cease your labor, your care and diligence, until you've done all that lieth in you to bring all such as are or shall be committed to your charge unto agreement in the faith and knowledge of God. It goes on in the same vein. But that's it, you see. And so Timothy has that weight. Paul says, I want you to remember that. I want you to remember the charge that was given to you. So what you're experiencing now isn't unique to you, time and place and person. It, it isn't odd. It isn't, it isn't out of the realm of what was to come. We told you about this. We told you that this was your charge. Now, Timothy, I want you to get on with it. And he says, here's how you get on with it. He says, you wage this good warfare holding faith and a good conscience. On the one hand, he says, holding faith. That is to say, maintaining faith. Of course, how can you, how can you guard the truth? How can you live it and proclaim it? And unless you're holding on to it, he says, don't let anything um, destroy this faith. Don't let anything dilute it. Hold this faith. And he says a good conscience. And as we've been saying throughout the course of this service during our time of confession, another time, a good conscience, a conscience. That which is the arbiter of our, the, our moral compass, if you will, the moral arbiter of our lives. We need a good conscience. It's that moral arbiter that says this is right and this is wrong. And not only that, this says this is right Embrace that which is right. This is wrong. Flee that which is wrong. And so we realize as believers that we need to have our conscience, this moral arbiter, informed by and transformed by the word of God. That is, we need to think God's thoughts concerning that which is right and that which is wrong. And and if that's our conscience, then it is a good one. It approves that which is good. And he says, here's how you're going to survive, Timothy. Here's the key. You see, because at this moment, no matter what we've said about the church, no matter what we've said about others in the church, no matter what we've said about the, the battle that's going on, what Paul is concerned about right now is Timothy. 
He's worried about Timothy, if you will. He's concerned about Timothy. And he says to Timothy, here's the only way you're going to survive this. If you hold faith in a good conscience. And again, that's the same word to us all. The only way we're going to survive this, this, this walking with Christ is to maintain faith. We lose that. We've lost everything. A good conscience, if we no longer can, can, can know what's right and wrong and to live and to do that and approve that which is pleasing to God, then, then we lose it all, he said. So you've got to hold on to both of those things. It, it, it's the old hymn, trust and obey. Again, I was going to write a book about that, but that's it, you see. That's as much as we need. We need to have faith, and we need to obey. We need to have right truth, doctrine, and obedience to that. A good conscience to approve that which is right, and the good sense and the power to live that out. And notice what he says. I'm not going to do all of this this week. You'll have a ton of questions. I'm just going to leave them. I just want to grab one thing out of this next little bit. He says, holding faith in a good conscience, verse 19, by rejecting this. Now, it's a singular, this, not these, but this. So it may be that Paul is combining them together in sort of one package, faith in a good conscience. But most likely, he's referring to only one of those, faith or a good conscience, And given the juxtaposition of the words and the way they're lined out in the sentence, it's most likely that Paul is saying, rejecting a good conscience. We'd expect it to be faith, but but, but almost everybody who's ever read this passage and dealt with this, no, no, he's talking about a good conscience. Rejecting a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. It would sound funny to say, rejecting faith, some have made shipwreck of their faith. So it's most likely a good conscience. You know, rejecting a good conscience, you shipwreck your faith. What's he saying? He said there's a relationship between holding faith and holding a good conscience. And if you lose the approval of that which is good, if your moral arbiter stops being informed by the word of God and you cease following after it, it will shipwreck your faith. Now, parenthetically, a lot of you are thinking, what does this mean about what we say in our tradition, the perseverance of the saints, and what other traditions talk about the security of the believer? What does this mean? Does this mean you can lose your salvation or any of that? I'll talk about that later, some other time. But let me just simply say, in Paul's mind at this moment, none of that matters. He doesn't care about that at all. That's not the question that's in his mind that he has to explain. He's just simply laying this out. And he's saying, Timothy, I want to tell you something. That you need to maintain a good conscience. Else your faith will be shipwrecked. Leave it at that. Now, why is that true? Because you see, the way that we're wired is that if we go along and reject a good conscience, it means that we're disapproving that which is really good. And we're approving that which is really bad. And what that means is that we'll live in perpetual disobedience. And if we're living in perpetual disobedience, just by nature of who we are as rational creatures, we will develop a rationale for living that way. 
And as we develop a rationale for living that way, we will develop a truth that stands against the truth of God. And it will be a lie. And our faith will be shipwrecked. It won't reach its destination, which is transforming us to be those who love, as Paul said in chapter 1 earlier, that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Interesting book called The Making of an Atheist. I have strange books in my library. It's written by a Christian guy named James Spiegel. Don't know him. Teaches at Taylor University. But his thesis, and it comes from Romans in chapter 1, his thesis, he's a philosopher, his, re, his, his thesis is that rejecting God is not simply a matter of intellect, a matter of the mind, a matter of argument, a matter of what you believe to be true. But it's also a matter of the will. The notion being that as human beings, sinful human beings, we reject this truth because of unrighteousness. We don't want to believe it. Jesus put it like this, that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And his point is, as he has studied various atheists, he realizes that their atheism or their, their rejection of God is a rationale to enable them to live an immoral lifestyle. I'll let you read the book if you want and, and, and see if it's, if it's credible in terms of his, his research. He, he quotes a, a number of, of those who do not uh, believe in God. One philosopher puts it like this. This is a philosopher named Thomas Nagel. He said, I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right about my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Where does that come from? Not just from argumentation, but it comes from this heart desire. Um, Aldous Huxley is probably the most famous of these who have made this statement. I trust you've heard this one before. He says, for myself as no doubt for most of my contemporaries. The philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. Why do people reject God? Is it simply because of, of, of difficulties of mind, difficulties of, of argument, or, or is it because there's something else going on in the thesis of this book? And I think the thesis of the scripture is that men suppress the truth and unrighteousness and it causes us even to be illogical, unreasonable in our own thinking. In fact, a man by the name of Paul Johnson, don't know him either, wrote a book called Intellectuals. Uh, and, and here was his goal in writing that book. He says, I want this to be an examination of the moral and judgmental credentials of leading intellectuals to give advice to humanity on how to conduct its affairs. In other words, so, so he took a series of, of, of very smart people, intellectuals known for their, for their uh, academic prowess and all of that. And he said, I wanted to look at their lives to see if they have any credibility to give advice on morality to human beings. And here was his conclusion. He said, The works of these intellectuals were often calculated to justify or minimize the shame of their own debauchery. 
So you think about that. Yes, there are some who reject God and, and are able to give good argumentation for that, but we must also remember that in the midst of that is this sense of suppressing the truth. The human heart, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, doesn't want to believe this. And so we come up with all kinds of rationales for it not to be true, even it's it's as silly as the earth was populated by aliens. Right? Richard Dawkins. So, Paul is just simply saying to Timothy, be careful. If you reject a good conscience, you'll develop a rationale that defends your sin. And in defending your sin, will cause your faith to be shipwrecked because you, just like Hymenaeus and Alexander, will blaspheme, speak that which is false about Christ. Now, I preach this in part to share my pain with you, <laughs> to share my life. So you know why I always look tired. But for all of us as well, as a good catch in our step, as a good caution to our lives. An old dead preacher once said that the most important words said to him was by another pastor who said, don't trifle. Just those words. He said he contemplated that his whole life. And, and as he did, he, he realized that, that, yes, life is serious. Oh, yeah, we'd have fun and all of that. But he said, don't trifle. Don't mess with don't count as small these great matters. And don't get your priorities upset. Don't, don't get your priorities wrong here. But understand the good fight and the good fight to maintain truth, the good fight to maintain faith. And you need to do that by continually approving that which is good. You see, we mustn't let down our guards. We must continue to approve that which is good. That's why I said at our confession time, the confession helps cleanse the conscience and helps keep our conscience good because it, it forces us to, to rethink. It forces us to say, no, this is what's good. What God has said is what's good. And, and even though my life may be out of sync with that, what I need to do is not make a rationale for my sin, but to admit it and to say, yes, that sin, this is true. I'm going to affirm this is right and I'm going to admit that is sin. Now, what gives us the strength to do that is because we know Christ. Because we know that he died to take the penalty of that sin. And so we say, oh, yes, I don't have to excuse it. It's been dealt with. I affirm that this is true. Paul says, you do that, your faith will remain. And that, you see, means everything. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me and for us that you would enable us, God, to maintain a good conscience. That our faith may be kept Father, call us at every moment on how we're rationalizing our sin, how I do that. And enable us then to affirm, to approve, to embrace that which is good because it's good because your word says it's good. So please help us, I pray. Keep us that none of us finds ourselves shipwrecked 
but keep us on course individually and most especially corporately as a church, Father. We do give you praise for the good things that you give to us. We thank you for the birth of Nellie Pearson just this last week to Tara and Darren, and we're grateful, grateful for that, and we give you thanks. We pray for those in difficulty. We pray for our dear friend Delbert Earhart as he has surgery tomorrow. We pray that you would um, give him strength, doctor's wisdom, and you bring healing to his body. We thank you for his faith. Pray for Alicia Smith as she's in the hospital because of her pregnancy. We pray that you'll keep her and the baby safe until delivery. Pray for Lorraine Canistris. She heals from shoulder pain. Her shoulder is so very important to her as she gets around in her wheelchair. So be with her, Father. Pray for Linda Everett as she grieves the loss of her mom. And I pray that she and Mike and their family can be a great support. Father, we pray for the world in which we live, for the trouble that's in Egypt. I pray most especially for our brothers and sisters there, that you would keep them, that their faith would be strong, their witness true. I pray, God, for even close to home, the work of the Pregnancy Care Center, that, Father, that you would uh, cause people to give in such a way to that ministry that it would be a blessing to women with, who are pregnant and struggling about that. Pray for the life of those children. Father, be with us as a church, I pray, that we could be what you call us to be that's uh, way beyond anything we can be, which is a pillar and support of the truth. Without you, we're sung, so please help us in that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace be brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, all through Jesus Christ our Lord. And together let us sing. Mm -hmm.